Today, Rinpoche again gave an excellent explanation of the middle way consequence view, showing that when you do an exhaustive analysis using the seven-point analysis of the chariot, one cannot find intrinsic existence in any phenomena. So, welcome again to the Chen Rezig Center. We're looking at Lama Tsongkhapa's great treatise on the stage of the path to enlightenment, and specifically chapter 3 in the English, uh, English edition. Uh, number three, how to establish the chariot under various names, page 284, is where we will begin when we do begin. Uh, but Rinpoche wants to give a brief uh, introduction to the um, topics that are contained within the great treatise of the stage of the path to enlightenment. Um, so if you take all of Lord Buddha's... Okay. Okay. So if we take all of Lord Buddha's teachings... Um, uh, they're compiled into a uh, hundred texts in Tibetan. Uh, sometimes they say a hundred and eight in Sanskrit, but there's a hundred Tibetan texts, which are the pronouncements of Lord Buddha. And then uh, there are the authentic Indian commentaries that are called the Tangjur. Uh, there are 213 of those in Tibetan. So behind me we have the Kangjur and the Tangjur, and we also have Lama Tsongkhapa's Sungbum, and, and which also contains not only Lama Tsongkhapa's works, um, but we have Kirtup J and Jelsup J's collected works, works as well. Rimache, the Lama Tsongkhapa Tsongbom, Jelsup Dan Kirtup Nyamdu Yurbe Nyomare. Nyamdu. Sumbum Nyamdu. Okay, so in this Sumbum, the Jelsup and Kirtup J's texts are contained. Um, as well as Lama Tsongkhapa's text. So those are what the texts we have behind us. Rinpoche asked me, if you're saying, thinking he's saying more words, Rinpoche asked me to expand a little bit on the, the Lam Rim uh, slightly. Uh, so uh, these, are the these are the texts which we consider the authoritative texts. Um, these are what all of the Tibetan commentaries are commenting on, and then the English books, and whenever we go to teachings, all of these teachings are commenting on primarily the pronouncements of Lord Buddha, the Kangjur, but we consider the Tangjur, the authentic Indian commentaries, authoritative as well. So we consider them Rimache, the Tangjur Sanje Ka Yomare, Yene the Chu Gunchu. Chu Gunchu, Chu Gunchu, So we, we would say that um, it would be considered. Uh, the Dharma jewel in, in the way of like a, a symbol of the Dharma jewel. Um, so the Kangjur um, and the, the Tanjur would be symbolic of the Dharma jewel. 
um, because the Dharma jewel is the actual realization within the continuum of a being that these texts are presenting. Um, so we considered both the Kangjur and the Tanjur authoritative uh, representations or symbols of the Dharma jewels um, and very difficult uh, to understand and read. Um, so what Lord Atisha did, who is an Indian scholar, um, uh, when he traveled to Tibet, he made uh, a text called The Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment. I'm trying to shorten this as much as possible. He made a text which was called The Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment, which basically showed a practitioner where to begin, where the middle of the practice is, and where the end of the practice is. So before Atisha came to Tibet, there was a lot of misunderstanding and confusion and wrong teachings that were happening, uh, and someone invited him to come and asked a series of questions to help clarify the Dharma of Tibet during that day. And so Atisha answered those questions by writing the lamp for the path to enlightenment. Um, and the lamp is a very short text. Um, it's almost considered like a poem. Um, I don't know, 60 or 70 stanzas maybe, not that many. Um, so it's difficult to ascertain the complete meaning of the stages of the path by just relying on Atisha's text alone. So it's for that reason that Lama Tsongkhapa in the late 13, early 1400s compiled and wrote the text, The Great Treatise on the Stage of the Path to Enlightenment, which is a commentary on Lord, Lord, Atisha, uh, Lord um, not, uh, Atisha's work, The Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment. So it, it expands upon the meaning of The Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment uh, without straying from any of the information that is presented in the Kangjur and the Tanjur. So the great <coughs> treatise on the stage of the path to enlightenment, even though it, it expanded on Lord Atisha's text, um, it didn't add any information that was Lama Tsongkhapa's opinion. All of the, uh, the information that's contained within it can be cross-referenced and checked by looking at the Kangjur and the Tanjur, the authentic Indian commentaries and the pronouncements of Lord Buddha. So that's a way that we say to test whether a text is accurate or not, is whether it weighs against the pronouncements of Lord Buddha or it contradicts them. Um, so Lama Tsongkhapa wrote this text that we're currently looking at in order to expand upon Lord Atisha's text so it would be even easier for someone to understand where to begin, where the middle is, and where the end is. Um, and then it, it, there's been many, many commentaries written on this text, and they're just to make it easier and easier and easier for someone to understand. Um, but this text is considered not an easy work. It's not considered a, a light read or something that someone who isn't a scholar can, can understand all of. But the beauty of the great treatise on the stage of the path to enlightenment is that someone who just was introduced to Buddhism and a scholar can derive great benefit from it. The section that we're in on the special insight um, which deals with emptiness and the various tenet systems is very difficult to even read let alone understand and you, to understand it you would have to be a Geshe to understand it in its fullest intent what Lama Tsongkhapa is intending for the reader to derive. Um, so there's really something for everyone and that's why it was written so that any practitioner could pick this book up and, and know, okay, I've done this, this, and this. I've, did I do it in the right order? Am I, do I have the correct foundation? And if so, could literally go to the last, the 
three quarters of through the book and then go from there if that was such a practitioner who had done all the preliminary practices somehow um, and was just needed to know where to go from there. So this text could appeal to them or someone who just heard about Buddhism today. Um, so the way that Lord Atisha summarized things was by doing it in three categories. So it's called the teachings for beings of three capacities. Uh, teachings for beings of small, medium, and great capacity. Uh, so the teachings for beings of small capacity um, are the category of teachings which are for practitioners who wish to achieve higher realm rebirth. Achieve rebirth again as a human, if you're a human, or a demigod or a god. Next rebirth in the higher realms of cyclic existence. So uh, as a note, we're currently in the human realm of cyclic existence. Buddhism asserts that there are six realms, the lowest realm being the hell, then the hungry ghost, then the animal realm, then human realm, demigod, and god's realm. The lower realms are considered the, the animal, the hungry ghost, and the hell realm, and the higher realms are the gods, demigods, and humans. So this category is for a practitioner who is solely looking at his or her future lives and wishes to achieve higher realm rebirth. These are called the teachings uh, shared in common with beings of small capacity, and these practices are as follows. Uh, going for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So going for refuge to the three jewels. Engaging in ethical behavior that abandons the ten non-virtuous activities. And acknowledging one's downfall if one wavers. Uh, or confessing one's downfall if one wavers. So acknowledging that I've done something wrong basically is what that means. Um, it isn't in the Catholic sense of confession, so I'm always careful to use that word. It's basically the confession is an acknowledgement so that you don't do something again. You're, you're putting an imprint in your mind saying, that's not a good thing to do, so your mind has this imprint of, that's not what I do. That's basically the psychology of it, of, of this confession, is acknowledging in a, in a specific way, acknowledging that you've done something which is against those ten non-virtuous activities or conflicting with those. Uh, so by depending upon those practices, one is able to achieve higher realm rebirth. This is the first category. Second category is called the teachings shared in common with beings of medium capacity. These teachings are for practitioners who wish to achieve their own individual liberation. Uh, not Buddhahood, but nirvana for themselves alone. Uh, this practitioner engages in the three highest higher trainings, the highest higher training in ethics, concentration, and wisdom. And by doing so, he or she is able to achieve nirvana. But even though they, that practitioner is in a state of liberation or nirvana, has gotten rid of all of the afflictive obstructions, um, and no longer is cyclic existence, um, that practitioner who is now uh, a being in nirvana still has the imprints of the afflictions that are remaining. And that's why they're not a Buddha. So the, the, we, we hear Hinayana and Mahayana. The Hinayana goal is the goal to achieve your own individual nirvana. This is the reason why it's called Hini. The word Hini in Sanskrit means smaller. So the smaller, and that's why um, a smaller. Why is it smaller? Because the scope is smaller. You're only worrying about getting yourself out of cyclic existence, whereas the Mahayana, the great vehicle, um, um, is concerned with 
not only getting yourself out of cyclic existence, but getting all beings out of cyclic existence. So the scope is much bigger, so it's called Maha, Mahayana. Maha in Sanskrit means great, Hini in Sanskrit means small. And so we call it the lesser vehicle or smaller vehicle, not to be condescending, but because its scope is smaller. And the Mahayana, the great vehicle, isn't called that to boast. It's because one's object of observation is the liberation of everyone, all sentient beings in all six realms. Um, so the practitioner that is has practiced all of the Hinayana's teachings and perfected them and is now in nirvana, still has these imprints which are called obstructions to omniscience. And those obstructions to omniscience disallow them to work for all others' sake and so forth. So the, the last category of teachings are the teachings for beings of great capacity. And these are for practitioners who wish to achieve complete Buddhahood, complete cessation of the afflictive obstructions and the obstructions to omniscience for the sake of all sentient beings. So the purpose of this practitioner's path is to free all sentient beings from suffering and, and to become a Buddha and f in order to free all sentient beings from suffering. Because the best person for the job of freeing sentient beings is a Buddha because the Buddha, he or she is omniscient and knows what's best, doesn't think about what's best, knows what's best, knows what your imprints will manifest and so forth. So that's why one aspires to be a Buddha, to be in the best position to be able to help sentient beings be free. It's not to be the greatest person, it's to be the greatest helper. The, great, the person with the most compassion is the one who wins in this, not the person who um, arrives at their own goals. The goal is to arrive for everyone to arrive at the same thing I want. And th that practitioner needs to practice the teach The reason those things are called shared in common, the very the previous categories, is because they're necessary to practice. The medium needs to practice the small. The great needs to practice the medium and the small. So the great scope practitioner who wishes to become a Buddha practices the small and medium scope teachings that are shared in common, and then couples them with the generation of the mind that aspires to enlightenment, bodhicitta, and then from that mind state practices the six perfections and then perfects those perfections um, and then arrives at the other side, arrives at out of uh, a place which is out of cyclic existence, which is freedom from cyclic existence, a cessation of that suffering state forever. Um, so those are the three categories that all of Lord Buddha's teachings can be put into. As a note, the tantric teachings go into the great scope um, and they're just, uh, when you divide Mahayana, it's divided into two categories, the perfection vehicle and the resultant vehicle. Uh, the perfection vehicle are the sutra teachings and the resultant vehicle is the tantric vehicle. Um, so that is basically the history of why this text was written, what, what's written, what it's written about, um, and uh, just a, a brief explanation of its content. Okay, Deesa. Tasmobamig 
Chaja 
We're going to um, finish this chapter today, and instead of getting into the next chapter, we're going to then have an, an extended question and answer session. Um, so, yeah, that's what Rinpoche wants to do. How to establish the chariot under various names. Chandrakirti's explanation of the Middle Way commentary states, Our position very clearly establishes the conventional designation of a chariot in terms of what is familiar to the world. What is more, you should also assert any of the chariot's various names in terms of what is familiar to the world without analysis. It is thus that some chariot is known as whole, as a composite, as an agent. Living beings are established as appropriators of the five aggregates. Rimache, nay the injike lotsana chiran dendel dets chironang. Dixon, dendel the. Okay, two check. So once I'm done reading in English, Rimache is going to give a, a short explanation of dependent origination and emptiness. Um, in relation to parts and components, such as wheels, a chariot is established as a referent of the convention's whole and composite. Likewise, it is designated with the nominal convention agent with reference to its activity of appropriating wheels, etc., and with the nominal convention appropriator in relation to the appropriated parts. Some Buddhists claim that mere groups of components and parts exist and that since nothing different from the, that is evident, wholes and composites do not exist. Likewise, they claim that only actions exist, but agents do not, and that since nothing different from appropriation is evident, appropriation exists, but the appropriator does not. In terms of the conventions of the world, these positions are inaccurate because were they accurate, even parts and such would not exist. With that point in mind, Chandrakirti said, do not destroy the conventions familiar to the world. 
Therefore, what we advocate does not violate the principle of the two truths. Ultimately, just as wholes and so forth do not exist, neither do parts and so forth. Conventionally, just as parts and so forth exist, so do wholes and so forth. The advantage is that you find the view four. The advantage that you find the view quickly by using this example. Chandrakirti's explanation of the middle way commentary says, those worldly conventionalities do not exist when analyzed in that way, but exist only through being taken for granted without being subject to scrutiny. Therefore, when yogis analyze these worldly conventionalities through this very process, they will be very quickly they will very quickly fathom the depths of reality. How? What does not exist in the seven ways, how could it exist? Thinking thus, yogis do not find the existence of the chariot and thereby easily enter into reality as well. Hence, you should also assert the establishment of the chariot in that way. This means that it is those, through such analysis of the chariot that you quickly fathom the deepest meaning of reality, that there is no intrinsic nature. Thus, it is evident that this is a very crucial point. Yogis who in this way analyze how things exist will develop certainty, thinking, if this chariot existed intrinsically, then when I search with reasoning that looks to see whether it exists intrinsically in any of the seven ways, same, different, and so forth, I should undoubtedly find it in one of those seven ways, yet I do not find it in any of those seven ways. It is apparent that despite that not being found, I cannot repudiate the convention of the chariot. Still, chariot is imputed only by way of the mind's eye being corrupted by films of ignorance. It is not intrinsically existent. Such yogis easily enter into reality. The words as well in Chandrakirti's phrase, enter into reality, as well, show that this analysis does not harm conventionalities. As a system for delineating alternatives in the refutation of a chariot's intrinsic existence, the investigation of these seven ways clarifies the possibilities and greatly clarifies the refuting arguments. Thus, it is easy to realize that a chariot lacks intrinsic existence using this analysis. In brief, there are three advantages to presenting this topic as explained above, <coughs> beginning with the chariot. The one, the advantage that it is easy to refute the eternalistic view that superimposes intrinsic existence on phenomena. Two, the advantage that it is easy to refute the nihilistic view that dependent arising is invalid in the absence of intrinsic existence. And three, the yogi's investigative process, which establishes the first two advantages by carrying out analysis in just a such manner, such a manner to elaborate on these three. One, when you use a highly condensed method of refuting intrinsic existence, refuting just same and different, it is difficult to understand. It again becomes difficult when there are too many alternatives. Thus, the sevenfold analysis is quite appropriate. In that, you refute an object of negation with an added qualification during the initial refutation. You refute intrinsic existence without damaging the conventional existence of action and agents. After you have developed certainty that the pervaded intrinsic existence does not extend beyond the pervader, the seven ways, such as one and different, you then show that each of those seven is contradicted. When you determine that every one of those is seven is contradicted, this negates the pervader, whereby the pervader is also negated. After you have done this once, you then repeatedly develop decisive certainty that there is no intrinsic existence. After that, when you see that you cannot repudiate the convention of the chariot even through though there is no intrinsic existence, you think, oh, it's amazing how the magicians of karma and the afflictions conjure up these illusions such as chariots. 
Each arises without even the slightest confusion from its own causes and conditions. Each lacks even the slightest trace of essential or intrinsic existence. You will be certain that dependent arising means that things are not intrinsically produced. As Chandrakirti's commentary on the 400 stanzas says, pots and such do not exist under the fivefold analysis as to whether they are the same as their causes or other than their causes. Nevertheless, through dependent imputation, they can do things like hold a scoop, honey, or water, or milk. Is, not, is this not wonderful? And what lacks intrinsic existence and yet is evident is empty of intrinsic existence, like the circle of a whirling fire ban. Um, so uh, that is where we'll end. The Chu Tamche Tombani Dendel Yimbichir, Leilash, the Death Trio. That and the Susu Nad and Nala Chajabaina Yabudu, and the Nasa toward the Pomonga Tubala Dunitruvores, Maduba Radioma, Dunitruva Dendela Ores, Dunitruva Yenta, Maduba Radioma, and Tonian Wonders. Tony Mepa Kalikapu de Mepa Kakare, Tony Dang Mepa. That never Madus allowed the Mepa Kosuna Chetal Hundres, lesser, or the Lutachan Hundres. Yes, the Demba Yoba Kosun Tatal Hundres, Demba Druba. Okay, sixteen. The Mepa Chetal, lesser. What do they somewhere? The nay, the Dutta Mawaje, the Kanga, the that's good. That's good. Kanga data yirbe. Toto ma joka joka. Tenjo yo mare. Tanjo ma yemba kanga data yodre da. Kanga tenjo ma yemba. The ne the the nampa toto ma wajim the mepa yirbe. Mepa mepa yo maro. Mepa yo mare. Data yire mepa yo mare. Tata Yosa Yomare. Chita Yomare. Tata Chita Nija Yomaro. Yomare, Yene, Chita Yuna Mepa Yoguro. Sam Sampa Kaylen, Chita Yomarebe. Tata. Tata. Okay, two chain I remember. So when we divide uh, Tibetan Buddhist. Philosophy, according to view of emptiness and some of the other views, uh, it can be divided into four tenet systems, four major tenet systems. Um, it's something that came later, and it was just another way of making an order out of a lot of information. Um, so there were people who held these views and others that hold those views, and um, you could figure out and name by category, those views and the groupings of people who held certain views. So that's what they did um, in history. And, they, and it's called the, the Four Tenet Systems. Um, the first of the Four Tenet Systems is called the Great Exposition School um, in English. In Sanskrit, it's Vaibhashika. The second, uh, and so that, and I'm reading them, I'm saying them in order of the lowest school to the highest school. Um, and why are we saying one's lower, one's higher? It's because the highest school has the most refined, subtle view of the nature of reality that's correct and irref- not refutable. 
um, all of the other schools below the highest school, you can refute in some way their assertions. So the final school, the middle way consequence school, um, the highest school, um, can't be negated with using uh, syllogisms or using any, uh, any um, other philosophical system. Um, so that's why it, we call it lowest to highest. Uh, highest is not refutable. Not, you can't negate it. There hasn't been a school that's been able to do that yet. Um, so uh, the, the lower school, but, but when I say that, it's not demeaning. It, that lower school, um, you find in the holders of that view, our main teachings on karma come from Vaibhashika school writers and sutra school writers. So don't ever think that lower, oh, that's not as good. It's just in the terms of their um, uh, um, understanding of the nature of reality, really. And, and there are a lot of things in common as well um, that are the same in the at Great Exposition School as they are in the highest school. Um, it's really the main differences are related to the nature of reality and the subtlety of what is empty and what's not empty. So the lowest school, the Great Exposition School, the Baibhashika School, um, is the first category. The second category is called the Sautrantika School, in English Sutra School. Uh, third category is the uh, mind-only school, Chittamantra in Sanskrit. And then the fourth category is the uh, middle way school, Madhyamaka in Sanskrit. And the middle way school has two categories, middle way autonomy and middle way consequence school. Middle, in Sanskrit, it's my, the middle way autonomy is uh, Madhyamika Svatantrika uh, and the middle way consequence school is Madhyamika Prasangika. Uh, so that's kind of the order. The Madhyamika Prasangika, or the Middle Way Consequence School, is the highest school. And they assert that nothing has intrinsic existence whatsoever. Um, so when we look at wrong view, according to Buddhism, uh, we state that there are, Buddha states that there's two views that you can hold that are wrong. One is substantialism, um, asserting a true existence of something. Um, a singularity of something uh, without reliance on anything else. Um, and then the other extreme, they're called the two extremes. The other extreme is nihilism, or believing that you know, nothing exists, nothing matters. Uh, so Buddhism, the middle way consequence school, is in the middle of those two views. If we look at all of the tenets except the middle way consequence school, all of the tenets below the middle way consequence school have substantialism. They hold the view of substantialism. Um, so they hold a wrong view, even though it's subtle in some cases, they hold a wrong view. So for instance, the middle way school is divided into two, middle way autonomy and middle way consequence. The middle way autonomy school still believes that there is an intrinsic existence in a subtle way, conventionally in objects. They believe that an object has some thingness to it, but it requires the person to establish it, name it, and combine it with this essence that it has for it to come into being. 
So that essence is still some form of intrinsic nature that the middle way consequence school says doesn't exist. The middle way consequence school says uh, using the topic of the I or the person. The I is not intrinsically existent, is not truly established because it merely dependently originates. So the I, the person, comes into being through a collection of parts or collection of aggregates that serve as an appropriate basis of designation once those things come together for the, the naming of I. But there is no I that exists separately from that collection that serves as a suitable basis of designation. Uh, any among that collection, because uh, there are, as a note, realms that don't have the form aggregate. So when we speak of aggregates, the five aggregates, not all um, persons or eyes have all five of those aggregates. But when we say the aggregates, um, it, it, we, we say among the five, just in case we need to exclude the form aggregate. But when we look at the I, or persons, or any being in cyclic existence, it's merely a collection of parts and feelings and consciousness and so forth that come together that then are named as, in my case, Jeff. But there's no Jeff out there that's separate from this consciousness and parts and all this stuff that's coming together that makes it suitable to say Jeff's sitting here. Um, so the em Jeff's emptiness is Jeff's lack of intrinsic nature, Je Jeff's lack of separateness or singularity, Jeff co comes into being through dependent origination. A collection of things come together and then Jeff is here. But that doesn't mean that there is no Jeff because these parts exist, but they don't intrinsically exist as something specifically. They only come into being through designation. They only they only become what they are once they're designated <coughs> as such. They aren't what they are designated as from their own side, exclusively separate from that designation. Uh, so that's what emptiness means. Jeff's emptiness, this book's emptiness, means that it dependently originates. This book is here because there's paper, and then there's a person who cut a tree and then made the tree into this and they made ink with something, and all of these things came together, and then we have something we just say is book. And we feel it's this substantially existent book that is from its own side book, but there is no book that is substantially existent from its own side because of that dependent origination, because all of those parts that come together to make the whole. There is no singular whole. There's a whole that is a collection. Uh, so that's emptiness. Um, I added very few things to what Rinpoche said, um, but the, the exact point is what he asked to, to be presented. That point is what he asked to be presented. Dixon. Olga. Questions? Sure. And then when we end, we'll just try to, uh, I don't know, just end, not quickly, but just know that we are leaving to, we're trying to get, I want to, try to get Rinpoche his lunch by right around noon in New York at the monastery. So it's about an hour, I think, hour and 10, 15 minutes, not much more. It's right past Danbury. Or I'm remembering it wrong and it's like four hours away. No, I'm kidding. It's not. We've done this before after class thing. All right. So um, you were talking about the dependent origination and everything. And uh, 
you know, the last the last links of dependent origination, the ones that are, uh, you know, like, like the final one is like aging, death, and suffering. Then you have the ones like craving and clinging that are towards the end. So They're not I, necessarily in that order, though. The uh, 12 links aren't in order. All the 12 links still are interdependent of one yes. another. Yes. But I mean, as, so I, I was just thinking, as a, because they say the five sense bases are part, part, you know, the five sense organs, the five sense, the five, uh, you know, senses that we the have. The sense powers. Yeah, the sense powers are all part of that links of dependent origination. But there are, you know, conscious, sentient human beings who have lost all five of their sense organs. Wouldn't that mean if, if uh, aging, Their sense powers can still be there and, and not functioning properly, though. They can be a faulty sense power. Oh, so like they can still... be defective. So it's if... there, it's defective. Oh. Yeah, in in the case, and the karma is what makes it defective. Uh, so it's uh, so even so, if you were theoretically capable of fully eradicating those five senses from your mind, that would mean that you wouldn't experience the other parts of. You know, if you could, would who? How do you do that? Well, you I, know I'm what I mean? Saying, like, like, if there you, are people, I mean, there there are children who are born without. Every once in a while, it happens. You know, people like Helen Keller who don't. Right, they have little. a faulty eye consciousness. Their eye consciousness is broken. But if they're not, so if their eye consciousness is broken, doesn't something that mean- in that either their sense power is faulty or their consciousness that it's powering is broken. There's something faulty that the karma, their karma is causing the sense power. But wouldn't they, like, like if your eyes just stop working, wouldn't you not be able to generate more eye, like karma through your eyes? Or you know, you know, desire comes from the, you know comes from these sense organs. So if I see something that I like, I, you know, it, it's that eye, like that eye contact. That's only one kind of craving, seeing. There's, you crave through every pore of your body something, whether it's fame or food or some type of alcohol or companionship or love or anger, every pore of your body has some kind of attachment that it can have. It's a, so you take away your sight, and you remember what things looked like. Say you never had sight, then you see with your hands. You know what I mean? Then you're attached to what you feel it looks like. If you don't have any feeling of your hands, then you're attached to what it smells like. If you get rid of all of it, you're attached to what you think it might be. Thank you. The Rinpoche, Kondiseudu, the Mekashe, Mik, the law, make law, the Pechichegomari, the Mekashi, the Na, the then Konsu, the Wombo Yomare, then Ne Segudu, Wombo Yo, Wombo Yure, Yene Junior, Wombo Dang Sheba Nietzsche Yure, Yene Chishena, the Mig Sheba Junior, Chishena Mig Wombo Junior, then Jun Garishene, Lay. Did that I can do the Garishene Mig law. Lay, you know the the June the console making making number share by year be. So it's just the cause. The fault causes the either misperception if somebody say is colorblind or sees something like sees a uh, snow mountain is yellow, for instance, when you have jaundice. Um, uh, so it could be something like that. Ca- there's something causing that fault in the consciousness. Rinpoche is saying so. There's some karma that has caused the sight, either consciousness or sense power, to be faulty. 
but you'd still would accumulate karma in whatever other way. But I see what you're saying. Like, if you could just start getting rid of senses, then couldn't you start getting rid of attachment? But are, we're attached beings. We're attached to the I is the biggest one. So that's the main thing that we grasp at. The I is I, as Jeff, being truly established. So you'd have that even if you were just a, a consciousness. You know? You'd be grasping at whatever you are present believe you are at that point. Even if you're in the bardo, you think you're an animal form, you're grasping at that as I. So it's dependent upon causes and conditions, like we're saying, like but the grasping itself is what goes cork back to just a mistaken view that pervades everything we think about. So it's just getting rid of that first step that gets rid of all the rest of it. So if you could go one by one. That's why they say when there's an antidote to anger, meditating on love, there's an antidote to attachment, meditating on ugliness, meditating on impurity, the real nature of the body, the pus and blood, and all of that, if you're attached to human forms and so forth. But the antidote to everything is meditating upon dependent origination, because if you find what the root of all grasping is, it's grasping at things as being truly established and then giving them all of these characteristics and qualities that they can't possibly have. We just make them up to have them. Like, that's a fancy car. That's a fancier car. To who? We make it all up. All of it. But we don't think we do. Okay. Yes, Dan, how are you? Good, how are you? Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Uh, so my question is, with regards to understanding... Um, kind of the nature of physical objects in the world. Okay. Um, so I feel like it's very easy to come to the conclusion that all things exist in some way in mind or exist available to mind because, for one, we all have our own karma and that karma that from in our mind uh, produces the world we experience. Also, uh, it is possible to have omniscience and therefore to be omniscient, to know all phenomena, we must be able to know those phenomena in our mind, so they are available to mind in some way. Also, it is written in, in, in books that I read from the Dalai Lama when he's describing um, Dzogchen uh, reflections. One of the things that he describes is to understand the nature of the mind, is, or everything as being the play of, of, of the innate mind of clear light. Mm. And so, so, so all, these, all these teachings point to the fact that, that our outer reality somehow exists in mind. And this also maybe re resonates with the teachings of the mind-only school. It is the teaching of it the mind-only yeah. school. So, exactly what you're presenting is okay. the teaching of the mind-only so school. So what I understand then, therefore, is it is appropriate to say that these things may be a, a correct and a, a appropriate to a certain extent, to the extent of the mind-only school. But once you, you achieve that level, you must go past it to realize that the mind, too, is empty. No, the mind-only school is wrong. Okay. So the mind-only school believes that we have a projector. Our mind is a projector. And it's projecting out everything that exists. And then the experience that we're perceiving to exist then is like the waves on an ocean that are going out and coming back. It's going out, it's projecting this reality, and then the reality is coming back to us 
and positing these seeds into a storehouse consciousness. Uh, they have an extra consciousness in the mind-only school that is like a bank that's like the projector. And there's this belief that it's all just a projection of this bank and it's just going out and coming in and going out and coming in. Um, and that there is not external phenomena. So the mind-only school is incorrect in that because then it starts to lean towards a nihilistic view and not really a nihilistic view, just an incorrect view that in external objects don't exist um, outside of the mind. Right. And then it, it makes the mind have this substantial existence. The mind is everything then. Mm -hmm. The mind is table. The mind, and then now consciousness and form aren't mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Now you're combining things that are mutually exclusive and saying somehow something that is suitable to be shown as form now can also simultaneously be consciousness without separation and that we can somehow use these items together, you and I can use this item together, um, that we'd have to be projecting the exact same thing at the exact same time and that would require the exact same karma to be able, because we're, if it's all a projection and that would mean that everybody in this room would be having to have the exact same moment of experience in order for that to be observed. Remache, Kong Triwa de Natsu the the Nam the Becha Mambo then Zochen. This is what happens with Zochen is a lot of people do come to the conclusion of either nihilism or the mind only school. Um, because it's very easy to see that um, the Buddha asks what creates the lower realms of cyclic existence, uh, an evil mind. What creates the higher realms, a positive mind. Um, and that was said by Lord Buddha. But what it meant was is that the karma and the virtue and non-virtue that um, causes your experience. So a virtuous mind causes virtue to occur. Virtue leads to happiness. Um, but if you look at it just in its main quick form, it looks like it's saying that it's all made from the mind. Then sem sampi dawa the chu tamche sem sem zusun the the teb. Teb the Shilola Yomari ng Semzusun. Sensapidawa. Sela Dada Drupa. So it, it is um, an emanation of the mind. So this is the mind only school, as Rimache just said, believes that all phenomena are just emanations of the mind. Then the Jun Garre, Garshene Jun. The Teb Dang Sem Chipa. Sem Sampa Sampa. Sheba Dang the Teb Chip Chipa. Sendere then they consult Sampa the 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 tab yure yine ngatsu semzu son. Da yine ngatsu sandan de zuro da kudun sandan go zuro da. Then they the ngatsu sem tab zuna 
Yeah, it's very confusing. I don't know how they believe that. So they, the belief is that the mind, it's independence upon the mind that's projecting these things that are there, but only from the mind's projection. So they're not saying they're non-existent. These things out here are non-existent. They're just saying that they are independence upon this projection of the mind that they are here. So I'm just I'm asking a lot of questions, um, just trying to figure out how then, if, how did, so my mind made a maker of the book too? You know what I mean? Like my mind made a tree, like all that before that. So if there, that's, the, that's where I think that the trouble runs into for the mind only school. But I don't know, Rinpoche said it's very good to think about these things and then go back and look at the tenet systems and see where things fit in and don't fit in. Um, so that's what he said. Then the Uma Kandre Kagdu, the Sem Sampa Uma Kandu, Uma Lenja Gare, Sem Sampa Sampa, the Chu Tamche, the Natsu Sheba Zuso, then the Umi Tanjor, the Lenja Gare. Sangue so it says the, the exactly what we think. So the, the book is awareness. The book has awareness. If the book is your consciousness, then the book knows something. The book knows where, how to drive to Middletown from your house. So if there is all... And so Rinpoche said that the Middleway Consequence School merely says that that object there is cognized by me and then named as this or that. That the, all the consciousnesses except the uh, mind consciousness, no matter what, misapprehend that book because they, they see it as substantially existent as book. And then the mind follows up with a nominal designation of that's a book. The, um, so it's stated that there, there's wrong view always in the other senses except the mind consciousness because it's only the mind that can can think about it and say, no, it's a collection of parts that are put together. All our other senses apprehend it incorrectly initially and believe it's intrinsically existent. 
and the mind follows behind it by not questioning it and says, oh, there's a book right there, um, and names it as a book. So Rinpoche said the middle way consequence view's view is that the conventional view is that that book is there. Why is, why is that a book? Why does it exist? Because you can pick it up and you can read it. And the definition of book is you know, something that has words in it that you can read, however they define book. So it's suitable to be within the definition of what a book is. So conventionally, that exists and it's a book. Its ultimate existence is that that book is empty. It's not truly established because it dependently originates. So the Middle Way Consequence School says that book exists as a book, but it doesn't intrinsically exist. Why doesn't it intrinsically exist? Because it takes a maker, it takes ink, it takes all of those things to come together for someone to show up and name it as book. But there isn't any book that's separate from that process of that comings together of a correction, collection that's appropriately to, appropriate to be named as book. So that's the emptiness that we speak of, that things don't have this intrinsic existence. So we're going to end there because it's 10.30. And thank you, everyone, for everything. And we'll do the concluding mandala offering and dedication prayer. And again, we're going to Carmel, New York, um, right from here. to the. Is it Kuan Yen? Is that what it's called? Kuan Yen Monastery? Anyway, it's, it's the, it's, if you haven't seen it, it's incredible. The Buddha is so big, you can't even in your mind like think about it. Oh, it's a big Buddha. It's big. It's like the biggest in the Western Hemisphere. And then there's a hundred thousand Buddha. I know I said this, but the hundred thousand Buddhas all around it. And then there's a lake with Quan Yen on the lake, who's the um, Chen Rezig in the Chinese Buddhism. Quan Yen is Chen Rezig. <coughs> so if you can go, it'll be fun. We're not going to spend all day there. It's just going to be eat Buddha go so don't feel like you have to like set up for the tent and stuff concluding mandala the fundamental ground is scented with incense and strewn with flowers adorned with mount meru the four continents the sun and the moon i imagine this as a buddha land and offer it may all sentient beings enjoy this pure realm i dedicate whatever virtues i have collected for the benefit of the teachings and of all sentient beings and in particular for the essential teachings of venerable Lozandrapa to shine forever I send forth this jeweled mandala to you, precious Guru. I dedicate all this virtue to emulate the knowledge of the hero Manjushri and likewise Samantabhadra as well. With whatever dedication is praised as supreme by all the conquerors who traverse the three times, I also dedicate all my roots of virtue for the sake of auspicious deeds. In that pure land surrounded by snowy mountains, you are the source of all benefit and happiness. All-powerful Abhugateshvara, Tenzin Jatso, may you stay until samsara's end. I pray for the long life of the precious Kensar Wandok, uphold their scriptural and realizational doctrines. Spiritual friend who trained extensively in the five great philosophical texts with exceptional wisdom and perseverance.